Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project. I'm Ron Steslow. Welcome back to our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape of this election. We have, as usual, an outstanding panel today, independent political strategist and Lincoln Project co-founder, Reed Galen. It's great to have you back, Reed. Thanks, Ron. Lincoln Project co-founder and former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party, Jennifer Horn. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning, Ron. And making her weekly roundup debut is Lincoln Project senior advisor, CNN political commentator, and former GOP communications director, Tara Setmayer. Hey, Tara. Always a pleasure. On today's episode, we're going to break down the differences between Joe Biden's and Donald Trump's reactions to the recent violence in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and Portland, Oregon. Then we'll get into Bill Barr's interview on CNN before we wrap up with the stories we're watching heading into next week. But before we get into today's episode, I want to go right to you, Jennifer, for some breaking news about Republicans and independents for Biden. Thank you, Ron. This is an exciting day at the Lincoln Project. We have launched kind of a sub-project that we are calling Republicans and Independents for Biden. Very successful launch so far, fingers crossed. Uh, a, a, what we're calling the Coalition of the Decent. Uh, and ex- we've just released really an extraordinary list of over 70 Republican leaders uh, this morning. And there are more coming. Uh, literally, as we went on the air, I have emails of more reaching out to us trying, you know, who want to be part of this. Um, and, and the message essentially is that um, there are lots, millions of good Republicans out there who care deeply about our country, who want to put country over party, who know that that Donald Trump cannot lead us to the greatness we seek um, and want to be part of an active, coordinated effort to defeat Donald Trump. Um, and so we have terrific people like Governor Christy Todd Whitman and Governor Rick Snyder and um, some s- former senators and a whole lot of former congressmen and members of former presidential administrations. And the list goes on and on. Um, and, uh, you know, people were getting together. We're coordinated. We're going to be uh, a well-funded, targeted, focused effort to make sure that Donald Trump is defeated on Election Day. And folks should join us. All, all those great Republicans and right-leaning independents out there, join us. Uh, you know, the best way to stay in touch with what we're doing and being part of this is to catch, catch up with us on social media. We're on Twitter at ours and eyes for the number four Biden, ours and eyes for Biden. Uh, and we, we look forward to working closely with everybody who's listening today. Um, make, make sure that we are successful uh, in this battle to save our country. And what is the website for anyone who wants to check out the, the new project? Republicansforbiden.net. I'm really happy that I get to be uh, the person on our team who is helping with the organization. We have an amazing uh, team behind the scenes working on it. And I just encourage folks, again, we're at, on, on social media at ours and eyes for the number four Biden. Outstanding. Let's dig into the news. During a speech in Pittsburgh on Monday, Joe Biden condemned the recent violence in both Portland, Oregon and Kenosha, Wisconsin. Biden said, rioting is not protesting. Looting is not protesting. Setting fires is not protesting. It's lawlessness. Violence will not bring change. It will only bring destruction. This came on the same day that Donald Trump defended the 17-year-old shooter who killed two protesters in Kenosha last week. 
Trump also defended the actions of his supporters who fired paintballs at a crowd of protesters on Saturday in Portland. And that incident came in the buildup to a deadly shooting of a Trump supporter in Portland. Tara, I want to go to you first. What was your reaction first to Joe Biden's speech on Monday? Finally, it was long overdue. I'd been calling for this for a week. Um, Once the violence started in Kenosha again, I thought they have to come out and condemn this immediately because I felt as though the the overemphasis by the RNC and Trump and all of his acolytes on this whole law and order nonsense was starting to, that narrative was starting to take a foothold. And I felt like the Biden-Harris ticket needed to unequivocally condemn what was going on because we saw that in the beginning of the summer in response to the George Floyd protests, that white America seemed to wake up a bit to the racial injustice and grievances going on in the Black community, the minority communities across the country concerning police brutality. That was something we hadn't seen really since the 1960s. And it was an opportunity to finally have that conversation, I thought, in a productive way. But then, once the looting and rioting started to happen, and you're watching this happen now on television, and it was not the majority of the protests, as we all know, but the images, it doesn't matter how real or not it is, perception is reality. And repeatedly seeing images of city blocks burning and clashes with police, it didn't matter if it was two square blocks in Portland or not. It started to, people started to say, well, wait, hold on a second. We're not okay with that. And we've seen a 10-point drop in support for the Black Lives Matter movement since then. So it told me that this whole law and order and there's mayhem on the streets was starting to resonate. So I said, Biden's got to come out and, and condemn this. And that speech on Monday, I thought was fantastic. Um, he really went after Trump directly, um, calling Trump a, a toxin in, of our, nas- in our national character, a poison, poisoning our national character, um, making the point that, you know, do I look like someone who is a, a radical socialist who would, you know, a- allow mass chaos in the country? No. I mean, he directly took Trump on, and that's what they have to do. There is no room for being genteel. I know that Joe Biden's nature is to be a gentleman of the Senate since he spent decades there, and he actually respects the office and respects the gravity of of it all. But the American people right now have, he can still be above the fray, but he has to be able to hit back and hit back clearly in a way that shows the contrast. That that was an example of the light versus darkness example that he used during the conventions, his convention speech. Donald Trump's message is darkness. Joe Biden's message is light. And being sober about what's going on, being fair, and acting presidential. So amen, finally, he needs to do it more often. Jennifer, in a recent YouGov poll, 52% of Americans said they believe we'll see an increase in violence like there is in Kenosha if Trump is reelected. Trump has tried to pin the blame for the violence on Democrats. The group Students for Trump even tweeted on Tuesday that Trump was touring what Biden will do to America when Trump stood in front of a burned building. How do we put the fact that this is Trump's America into perspective? Yeah, it, the, the most discouraging thing out of that whole question is that these were students for Trump, like that that we are that he is drawing in this youngest generation 
of, of you know, Americans who are looking for um, a path, who are looking for, for a future, and they're being drawn into this horrible thing that Trump is doing. The, the, the violence in Kenosha is just like so many other things under the, that under the Trump rule, the Trump administration, where Donald Trump um, incites and expands and takes a problem and makes it so much worse and then tries to come like marching through saying, see how horrible it is in America? You need me to save you. You need me to protect you. Completely denying the truth and the fact that we all see that he has incited this to begin with. Um, you know, the, 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 the contrast between who Donald Trump is and who Joe Biden is seems so clear to me that I it, it still frustrates me when you know that we have to have this conversation. But um, you know, Joe Biden is a man who who loves his country above himself, who knows from personal painful experience the necessity to heal when you have suffered you know, an injury, a pain, a loss, you know, um, who knows how to do that. And, and that's what I saw in the difference between those two speeches, um, you know, and that, that, that Joe Biden has lived a life. He has lived an experience that has uniquely qualified him to step into this moment for our country. Um, and so, so to, to try to suggest, you know, the the whole thing with with um, with Trump going to Kenosha should be such a clear message to the American people what he really wants, because remember the mayor said please don't come it will make it worse and the governor said please please don't come it will make it worse we are trying to to save our city we're trying to heal our people we're trying to make this right please don't come and make this worse and what did Donald Trump do he said screw all of you. I'm coming. I've never seen such a great campaign photo op as me standing in front of, you know, the, you know, the, the burned out buildings and the cars and get out of my way. So, you know, I just, I, I think that when people, I, I think that what Donald Trump is doing right now, trying to stir his base, trying to dig deeper. I said this the last time we were all talking, you know, he had, a, he has a choice. He can try to expand and open his arms and bring in more Americans, or he can dig deeper into that small part of his base that is so ugly and try to find a few more. That's what he's doing. Um, so I think that as this election unfolds, as more and more Republicans see how, what he is doing and watch what he is doing to our country, I think that I think it's going to have a significant I think that 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 what he's doing is going to ultimately hurt him more than help him. Reed, could you expand a bit on something Jennifer just said about Biden understanding healing? Well, he's had to. I mean, for several pieces of his life from losing his wife and daughter many years ago to losing his son. So I think that, you know, this and, you know, as vice president, too, you have to. You know, you you know, you're certainly not the healer in chief as the president of the United States might be, but you're still there, um, and you still have to, you know, you have to fill in for those places that the, that the president can't participate in. Um, but I think that you know, I, the only the only issue I would take with with what Jennifer said is, you know, and this is something that I really learned after reading Mary Trump's book is he's incapable of anything um, other than his base instinct. So when, when we say, okay, well, he can open his arms or, or dig deep, like there's only like, he's got a shovel, like that's it. Right. Um, maybe a backhoe. I don't know, but he, he is incapable of doing anything other than going for his base instinct, which is to divide, um, to upset, to scare. And then I think ultimately to, to demonstrate a fair amount of cruelty on his part. And so when he walks around those, those burned out buildings in that rubble, 
he doesn't care. It doesn't matter to him. To him, that's a site. That's a welcoming site that says, I can still do this. I can still, the things that I want to have happen are still happening. Because remember, at the end of the night, he's going to go home to the White House, a big fortified building with guys with guns that protect him. There is no personal consequence for Trump. And he doesn't have a conscience, so he doesn't feel bad about it. And so that's one. Two, I think, you know, to Tara's point, Joe Biden's going to have to take this campaign. He's going to have to take the presidency in the context of the election. Trump is not going to give it to him. Trump's going to do everything he can to keep it. And so Biden and Harris have to go out there and they have to go out every day. And when I say throw a punch, I don't mean throw a punch the way the Lincoln Project does, but they must assert their perspective on how this country needs to come together and how they're going to lead this country. Because what was concerning to me more tactically than strategic, well, I guess it was both tactical and strategic, was that they had the chance to go to Kenosha first and they let Trump go. If I had been them, I would have gone first because you always have to have Trump reacting to you. If he had gone in, set with the community, set with the pastor, set with the family, then Trump would have said something crazy that demonstrated his craziness. Instead, you allowed Trump to have the upper hand and get the first shot in. Can't do that. You must always be the one dictating the terms of the debate because Trump doesn't like that. It keeps him on his back foot. It is, in fact, been the, I don't know, the foundational conceit of the Lincoln Project is to keep the guy on his heels. And so they can do that in ways that are um, important and necessary. And I think to to Tara's point, too, I mean, you know, I've I've spent a lot of time in Portland doing campaigns. My aunt lives up there. The the people doing this stuff are not African-Americans. In fact, they're probably white kids from the suburbs. You know, and so, you know, when you have the mayor up there, you know, I would say this to the mayors, like there is no job, there's no politician that comes closer to affecting the daily lives of people than a mayor. And they must lead and they must manage and they must take control of their cities. And if that means that you tell the police commissioner and the police chief, you know what, get your guys under control, or I'm going to fire you, I'm going to fire all them, then that's what you do. And if you, and then you tell, you know, look, this is, and this is what I would say, whether or not it was the mayor of Portland or the governor of, of Oregon, you know, if I knew that the, that the Trump supporters and their technical pickups were coming for the city of Portland, I would have either parked the state patrol or the National Guard at the bridges and said, turn around and go home. You're not welcome here. You don't get to make a spectacle of our city and our state. And that's what they're allowing to have happen. And this is where you must say there is, as, as I think Tara said or Jennifer said, there's right and wrong, there's darkness and light. And then just let me say one last thing is that this week there's been some indication that we should, um, you know, that Biden should not debate Trump. This is ridiculous. This is like saying Luke Skywalker didn't need to face Darth Vader. Like he must confront Trump. He must confront Trumpism. He must look the guy in the face, punch him in the nose metaphorically and, and say, this is Donald, this is not your country. This is our country. We don't want any more of you. And you're going to be gone. And when you lose, Donald, you're going to leave. He needs to assert those things. In some ways, Joe Biden must take control of his campaign. Joe Biden is a fighter. He's not afraid to throw that punch. Kamala Harris, as we saw, as Joe Biden knows better than anybody, is not afraid to throw a punch. In fact, (laughs) she did it in the first debate against Joe Biden. That's right. So like, they must must take all the trappings of Washington, D.C. and nervousness. And what about this? And what about that? And what happens if we do this? We can't, it, as, as we all know on this, on this podcast, 
too many campaigns operate by the by the idea of first do no harm. That's fine, but it means that you limit about 80% of your options. They must go out and win this campaign. That's fine under certain political circumstances. When we're talking about Donald Trump and what he is capable of and not capable of, you know, empathy and healing and all these sorts of things, we have to remember too, it's not just, oh, poor Donald Trump has, you know, this personality defect. Donald Trump does not want to. These, these are conscious strategic choices in his mind. He does not want to heal the nation because it does not benefit him to do so. He does not want to bring people together because it does not benefit him to do so. Those are conscious decisions that he and Jared Kushner and Ivanka and um, Steve Miller and I mean the whole, these are conscious decisions they make every single day. Kellyanne Conway told us, they, she said the quiet part out loud that the mayhem and chaos and lawlessness benefits Trump. And so he's going to do whatever to keep that going because in his mind, it politically benefits him. But to Reed's point about the Biden campaign strategy here, listen, I, I'm an 80s kid. I grew up with Karate Kid and uh, Cobra Kai is back on Netflix. And I love it, by yes. the way. Bow to your sensei. <laughs> Reminds me of how old I am also, but still it's awesome. But listen, the Biden campaign needs to go by the Cobra Kai creed, which is strike first. I just want to expand on that a little bit on the on the Biden campaign strategy because it seems to me one of the most effective things he can do is go out there and be the president that we don't have right now that America needs. I was saying this in the early on in the campaign during the co- when the COVID crisis first hit, I would yell at my television by myself and say, hey, um, why isn't Biden in front of American flags at a podium looking like he's giving a presidential address talking about how he would solve COVID? People need to see those visuals, right? And they started to do that more, and I was glad to see that. Um, but he needs to do that even now. Now that we're after, you know, the conventions are over, we're in the home stretch here. Every appearance needs to be, he needs to act as if he's president yeah. already. Yeah. So people see the contrast. Is that what you want? You want the crazy that comes out of Donald Trump? The sweaty makeup, you know, dripping mess of a, of a slurring word lunatic? Or do you want someone who's clear-eyed and in command and understands how to be president? They need to see it constantly. Yeah, and and on the electoral front too, that you know he went to Pittsburgh, I think, on Monday, and now you know he's got to move around the country. If there's one thing we know is that you know the Biden campaign and its associated committees raised three hundred million dollars in August. I think it's three hundred and forty million. That's an outrageous amount of money. I mean, record breaking. But what what's really going to drive this is ultimately a lot of earned media you know, the press, the news. And so Biden needs to move around the country, even in small ways, even with small meetings, because he's going to pick up that earned media, that pre- that local press coverage that he really hasn't had to date. Um, you see that uh, Trump is heading to uh, Southwest Pennsylvania today. Now, I would say this, when, when Donald Trump, when, when Joe Biden goes to Pittsburgh, which is Allegheny County, that's like, that's like a good thing for Joe Biden. When Donald Trump goes to Latrobe, southwestern Pennsylvania. That's a bad thing for Donald Trump. It means he hasn't locked those people up yet. Um, so you can see where they're going. No, he's just locked up the immigrant children, just not the voters. Whew. Nice. But Biden needs to go out because even when we saw this with President Bush back in 2004, there's about a two-point bump in those markets every time you know the candidate or the president, in that case, lands somewhere. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it lasts forever. But it means that in that period of time, let's say three, four days, 
that there is a there is an, a corresponding increase in support for that candidate. So he's got to get out to everywhere and all the time. And they don't need a big plane. They don't need any of that stuff. They really don't need any of the trappings of normal normal campaigning. They just need enough people and press to to cover it. And but I think Tara's point is the big one in 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 in, in Jennifer's too. He's basically the shadow president now. Yeah, he's got to go out and and lead the country because the guy who's sitting in the Oval Office is you know tweeting about us uh, and not fixing you know COVID and the other things. If I was talking to the Biden people today, strategically, the best contrast that they can make between themselves and and between Joe Biden and Donald Trump is exactly these trips that that Reid is talking about into these um, targeted counties and communities where Donald Trump only does well when he, to his mind at least, when he has a roaring crowd in front of him. Joe Biden is best when he is talking to small groups of people. Remember that clip of him speaking to the young man with the stutter when he was at a town hall in New Hampshire? You know, you can kind of go through the list. Joe Biden connects with real people. And, and so when the press is following him on these smaller events and these individual connections, that is his best way of connecting with the American people, in my opinion. So, Tara, you mentioned the visuals. And we just spent a lot of time talking about the visual difference of a Biden campaigning and Trump campaigning. And I'm really interested in the contrast of character. And so when I, when I, when I think of being the president that America doesn't have right now but desperately needs, I think of character. Can you guys expand on that? Well, character counts. That used to be the Republican platform um, for decades. Republicans were, would hammer that home. I mean, I remember in the 90s, it was all about character when Bill Clinton was engaged in his dalliances. Uh, same thing in, in, in the Romney campaign, uh, McCain. You know, character is something that I think has been lost here because when you're, when you're talking about the president, that person should embody what the character of the nation is, right? And I don't want to believe that Donald Trump represents the character of this nation. Maybe some of it, but not all of it. And the idea now that character just doesn't matter, that Republicans have just tossed that out the window, I think is incredibly dangerous. You can't just excuse away someone who is a pathological liar, who's a sociopath, a malignant narcissist, who has authoritarian, who has authoritarian tendencies and is deploying things straight out of an authoritarian playbook on a daily basis including this law and order, only I can fix it nonsense. That's straight out of an authoritarian playbook. You create the chaos so you can go in and give people this sense of security that only you can fix it. Um, That is incredibly troubling, which is why Joe Biden's message of this is a fight for the soul of the nation resonates with me and a lot of people who feel politically homeless because they look at what Donald Trump is doing and how he behaves and they say, we, this is just not who we are. Um, and I refuse to believe that that is who we are. So the, the idea of character is um, incredibly important. And I just hope that we continue to push that home, why people should care. Would you want your kids to look up to this person? The president of the United States used to be someone your kid would aspire to be. You know, the, oh, you could be the president. Who, who would want their child to grow up and be like Donald Trump? But, but Tara, that's, that's the problem. The Republican Party... In 2016, a plurality of Republicans did say that character doesn't matter to them. Oh, I know. There's there's nothing about Donald Trump's character 
that should be a surprise to people. Like maybe it's shocking to see it play out in the White House now. But in, in that primary, plurality of Republicans said that character was not important to them. So I guess the question now is, have, has the experience of living with a Donald Trump president um, to reminded enough Republicans of why character does matter? Reed, Tara mentioned something earlier, uh, which is you know what Biden told the crowd on Monday. You know me, you know my heart, and you know my story, my family's story. Ask yourself, do I look to you like a radical socialist with a soft spot for rioters, really? Um, what should we be doing to reinforce the message that Biden is not a Trojan horse for socialists? Because that seems to be exactly how the Trump campaign wants to paint him. Well, I mean, it doesn't. It's it's doesn't work. Um, and and I think that the, the Trump campaign knows that, which is it doesn't won't stop them from doing it. But none of their things work because they don't. There's no strategy. There's no, there's no plan. There's no, I mean, the president of the United States is running for reelection. Has at, at any time, has Donald Trump uttered one syllable about what he wants to do with the next four years of Americans' lives? No, not one. He's incapable of it. At first, he can't see more than 15 seconds past his own nose. And second, back to the authoritarian piece that Tara mentioned. Authoritarians only look backward because they can't control what they can't control is the future. Therefore, they have to reshape the past into some mythology that fits with whatever the moment is. And then they need to take, you know, events as they come and then shape the narrative to that rather than leading. Um, because it's all about control. It's not about anything else. So, and, and I, let me just say one thing that, that, um, I think either Tara or Jennifer mentioned about the politically homeless. A, a reporter asked me, do you think that Joe Biden's providing a, a home for these politically homeless? Now, I said, I don't know that he's providing a home, but he is providing like a political Airbnb, right? Like it's a safe, you can come hang out here for now and you don't have to stay here forever, but just like, just hang out here till November and, and, and you know, we'll, we'll figure out where you can live next time. Super host. Yeah. <laughs> right. Joe Biden is the political super host. That is awesome. I will be using that moving forward and read Caleb, you will get the credit for it. So I, I think that, you know, when Biden says these things, look, I, here's one thing I think we should say, though, is that when Biden says that, we shouldn't believe that a lot enough people know who he is and enough people know his story. I mean, we've heard enough things from public surveys and from our friends and colleagues and contacts across the states that what they see in their research is that D Joe Biden is generally well thought of, but he's still, even at this late date, generally undefined. So as they as they're going through these these, you know, these actions in the course of the next days and weeks, the, the definition of Joe Biden is going to come from his actions more than his words. And I think that that's what we need to do. The Lincoln Project has done a great job of defining who Donald Trump is. And so we can continue that effort and amplify and you know help more and more of those um, uh, Republican and right-leaning independents know who Joe Biden is. Because um, to, to Reed's point, the worst thing that the Biden campaign could do strategically is assume that every voter they need already knows who he is. Or let Donald Trump define him. Or let Donald Trump define my him. point about the narrative over the law and order stuff getting away from them a bit because, you know, he needed to come out and say, no, you know, this is, don't, give me a break. Look at me. Do I look like that guy? And plus he was endorsed for years by police organizations and the firemen and all that, they all love Joe Biden. And so, you know, Trump has allowed him, to, you know, taking that away from him a little bit. But um, 
but he needs to remind people to Reed's point of who he who he's been. He wrote the crime bill for goodness sakes. That, so they can't. They're going after him for being too tough on the, with the, with the crime bill, but then too soft on on crime. Like that's going to be Biden's America. Which is it? They can't. They can't figure it out. It's like a big bowl of toxic spaghetti, and they're just yeah. throwing it out the wall yeah. repeatedly. But after four days of the 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 you know conclave of hell that was the Republican National Convention, I was a little you know. I woke up on Friday. I was like, oh, God, we're going to it's going to happen again. And then I then this week, you know, the president has been who he always is. He is now the guy who is talking about the the guy, the the mystery people in the airplanes on the loose. Right. And I don't know if you watched and and maybe we can put it somewhere that people can then see our, our version of it. But he's doing this interview with Laura Ingram at the White House. And Laura Ingram, who is not exactly known for being a, a, you know, having a moral compass, is trying desperately to keep this guy from going off the rails like the train and the fugitive. And I think the one thing I will say, you know, I, I, I always have my, my issues with the media, is that they're not really letting him off the hook on this stuff uh, anymore. And that's what they didn't do in 16. And, and they've, they've only done sort of, you know, occasionally is, you know, they ask him, who are the people on the airplanes? Oh, well, you know, it was a woman we know. And so the story changes because he's making it up as he goes along. Um, but it sounds crazier and crazier. So as he's doing that in his descent into madness, you know, Biden needs to climb, you know, the stairs of righteousness and and show everybody like what the future looks like. Yeah. Speaking of Laura Ingram and painting an insane alternative reality for people to live in, which is a classic, classic authoritarian move. Um, we had Ann Applebaum on the podcast uh, recently. She's amazing. She's just brilliant. Pulitzer Prize winning historian, staff writer at The Atlantic. Um, and if you're interested in what it looks like when authoritarianism takes hold in a democracy, I would encourage you both to go listen to that conversation, but also to buy her book because it's just... Uh, read, read, I think you read it. Yeah, it's, it's called The Twilight of Democracy, mm-hmm. and you get about seven pages in, and you're like, she's nailed it. And you look yep. up and you say, this is happening. This is happening right here. And it will happen here. And so I couldn't, yes, I mean, we had a conversation with her a couple of weeks ago internally. I know, Ron, you had her on the podcast. It was terrific. Her book is well worth the read. She's brilliant. And yeah, I commend everybody to go out and listen to it, buy it, Kindle, whatever it is. There's a reason it was more and more historians and people who study this stuff are becoming vocal um, I just did on my podcast, I just interviewed Professor Ruth Ben Giat, who just wrote a book called Strong Men. Mm, yeah. And she's amazing. And um, we talked all about the authoritarian characteristics. And she, uh, having her put it in historical context, because I don't think a lot of us think about it this way. And when you, you know, she made the same point for those who think that it could not happen here, um, they, I think that's, they've been rebuked at this point. There's lots of smart folks who study this for a living who are sounding the alarm for a reason. Yeah, and look, I mean, I'm also reading a book uh, called The Death of Democracy, which is about the 19, the lead up to the 1933 election in Germany, uh, which ultimately led to, to Hitler's ascent. And you see, you know, not, I'm not talking about the Hitler piece, but in the political dynamics of, of post-World War I Germany, you see so much of the, there. It's, it's, it's not a mirror image, it's an echo. And so it, we should, you know, we don't teach civics in school anymore, right? So the, most folks don't even know how the government works. But the point is, is that the, the lack of civics is also a lack of history. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we don't have enough people with the historical context generally. I mean, we can have nerds like us that understand it, uh, but we need a broader understanding and a broader discussion. And one thing I think, you know, I'll, I'll stop on this, what 
that Anne says in her book is that there's no, in the United States today, there's no national conversation, right? The, the, the Fox News people talk to themselves, the MSNBC people talk to themselves, and the rest of us sort of look around like, who are these crazy people? Um, and I think that that's going to be one huge thing for Biden to do once he takes office is to recast what are we all for? We can't all be against everything all the time. The Lincoln Project Weekly Roundup, folks, where we bring you your weekly dose of inspiration and encouragement about the state of American democracy. (laughs) This is a perfect segue, unfortunately, to our next topic, which is the Bill Barr interview. On Wednesday, Attorney General Bill Barr gave a wide-ranging interview with CNN's Wolf Blitzer. In the interview, Barr spoke about police brutality, which started the protests back in May after the murder of George Floyd, saying that he did not believe police shootings of Black Americans were racially motivated or as common as protests have made them seem. He called it a false narrative. He continued to say, I think there are some situations where statistics would suggest that they are treated differently, but I don't think that's necessarily racism. Black Americans make up 13% of the U.S. population, but account for 32% of all police shootings. Black people shot by police are more likely to be unarmed than white or Hispanic victims. 14.8% of black victims were unarmed and 9.4% of white victims were unarmed. Tara, I want to come to you first on this. Can you react to what Bill Barr said? So this is a, a, a really difficult conversation and a complex one that I don't think the country's prepared for because of the emotional just um, intensity of the conversation and the fact that we don't have leadership coming from the top trying to have a measured conversation about it. Many people know that I come from a law enforcement family. My grandfather was captain of my hometown police department for 40 years. I am married to a black federal law enforcement officer who grew up in Brooklyn. Um, it is difficult to, to, for people to understand that it's true that the shooting of unarmed Black men is actually quite rare. That's true. Compared to all of the interactions that police have across the country, there are you know, millions of interactions, and these incidents are actually quite rare. The problem is that when they do happen, they become and they become national news, then everyone thinks that this is an epidemic that's happening on a regular basis. And there's this terrible injustice where white police officers are going out and just gunning down innocent black men in the community. So, but where, but where there is, so then, you know, you have that part of it. So it gets blown up when it becomes these national, you know, stories with, you know, video, uh, videos of it and things like that. And then we have protests. Okay. Now, but it's also true that there is a there is a problem in the system systemically where black americans are treated differently in the criminal justice system bill barr does not want to admit this a lot of white america doesn't want to face the fact that justice is not actually blind and these have been problems that have been in the justice system for decades decades upon decades so when we do see it happen and there's a chance to talk about it, we can address some of the specific circumstances on some of these shootings, right? Like what happened to um, Michael Brown and Ferguson is very different than what happened to George Floyd. So, um, you know, there's a, we can't rush to judgment and we do, you know, officers do deserve due process, 
But at the same time, you cannot ignore the um, the injustices in the criminal justice system that do exist. And it's, you know, racially when it comes to sentencing, when it comes to, you know, who's arrested for what. These are real problems. The Department of Justice has an entire civil rights division to address these types of things all the time. There are federal laws in the books where officers cannot do things under the, quote, color of law. You know, this exists. And Bill Barr's approach to this is just, it's disingenuous. He knows it. He knows that there are problems in these areas. And he knows there needs, these things need to be addressed on a national, state, and local level. But he is such a pawn of Trump. And he is, he is no longer a, you know, an, an independent arbiter of justice in America. He is a, a political extension and henchman of the president of the United States who is inciting racial violence and division in order to gain political points, which is very dangerous. I think Bill Barr is one of the most dangerous men in America. And for him to go out there and have that attitude and be so smug as if we're all the jerks for pointing out what, we're, what the statistics show as far as you know, the criminal justice system. The shootings issue is a, is a bit more complicated from a law enforcement perspective. And I, I hate that people rush to judgment all the time, but that's where we are. And, but that, that's where leadership comes in to try to control those conversations. So Bill Barr, and I give credit to my colleague, Wolf Blitzer at CNN, for drilling him and really doing an excellent job of trying to pin him down. Um, but Bill Barr is disingenuous and he knows it. And this is not doing anything to give confidence to people that justice is blind in America. So Reed had to leave to another urgent matter. Um, but I want to talk about mail-in voting next because he and I have spent a lot of time during this election, uh, talking about mail-in voting on the podcast and in other formats. Um, and we get a lot of questions from listeners about how to talk to their friends and family who believe what Trump and Bill Barr are saying. So Tara, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. How can they talk to their people in that bubble about the legitimacy of the election because it is almost certain to be questioned? Yeah, uh, playing with fire is undermining our the integrity of our election system. That's what Bill Barr and Donald Trump are doing. They're the ones playing with fire here. This notion that it's unsafe to vote by mail in this country is asinine. There are five states that have been voting by mail, all mail and balloting, that have been very successful with virtually no instances of widespread voter fraud. The president himself tried to pull this after the 2016 election that he won, by the way, because he couldn't take the fact that he lost the popular vote, which doesn't matter. We have an electoral college, but it didn't matter. He wanted to make sure people thought, well, no, 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 it was because of voter fraud that I lost the popular vote. And they set up this commission, which turned out to be um, toothless, and they found nothing, this voter fraud commission, and had to disband in less than a year. There are conservative organizations like the Heritage Foundation that has done its own analysis on voter fraud over the last 20 years. Out of something like 250 million votes cast, they found 1,100 cases of voter fraud, like 1,100 voter fraud. That's it. That's it. It's like 0.000025%. I'll take those odds. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. So this notion that there's that it's playing with fire and all this, but absentee ballots are okay. But mail-in, all mail-in is not. Um, absentee ballots and mailing in your ballot are virtually the same thing. They are the same thing. Um, many states now have moved because of COVID and because of the safety issues now with voting in person. 
um, many states have now gone to basically absentee balloting. Their problem is that the, that they're claiming that ballots are going to be sent to all kinds of people and the, the dog could vote. And that is not true. Every single ballot I have voted by absentee ballot in the past, um, every single ballot has a has a, a barcode. They track it. They you know match your signature up against the voter list so that it's 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 very safe to do. Bill Barr himself during that interview, first of all, it was completely um, irresponsible of him to be so cavalier about mail-in balloting, considering that, like I said, five states have been doing it very successfully for years now. Um, and the majority of the country's moving to this and just throwing that out to the American people as something that is um, not a safe thing to do, I thought was completely irresponsible with no evidence. Um, he couldn't even list cases that were prosecuted at that level. When Wolf Blitzer asked him, he was like, oh, I can't think of all specific off the top of my head, but but we're investigating several of them. Give me a break. He's full of crap um, because there aren't any cases that are important enough where it's widespread enough. You're always going to have pockets here and there. But overall, that's with anything, you know? Overall, it is very, very safe to do it. Um, and so... <laughs> There's something else that's going on, too, uh, where the, it's not just Bill Barr doing this. This is a concerted effort by the Trump campaign, the Republican National Committee, the NRSC, and now the Justice Department with Bill Barr to lay the predicate in case Trump loses so they can point to this being illegitimate. That is really concerning. And people need to pay attention and they need to know who their supervisor of elections is. They need to know the deadlines and dates and the methods because every state is different. We don't have a national election. We have 50 individual state elections, basically, which is another reason why it's difficult to have widespread fraud. But be educated. Um, a lot of folks don't know that you know some, some supervisors of elections are elected, some are appointed, but be familiar with that. And if you don't think that the, you're, you feel as though your ballot is going to be mailed in safely, you can fill it, request it early and drop it off yourself at your, you know, the supervisor of election or whatever, check out what it is in your, um, in your locality. But the Trump administration, the Trump campaign is looking now to start suing different states who have gone to all mail-in balloting like Montana. It just came out today that the, that the Trump campaign, the RNC, they're suing Montana because they've decided to go all mail-in voting. Um, and they acknowledge that it's because it's a competitive Senate race there. And just so folks know, Tara, you mentioned the NRSC. Uh, and that stands for the National Republican Senatorial Committee. And this is the campaign arm of the Republicans in the U.S. Senate. They're responsible for helping to elect or reelect all of their caucus members. That's right. You have the RNC to the National Party, the NRSC Senate, and then the NRCC, which con uh, concentrates on con congressional races. All the campaign arms of the Republican Party, and they're all in cahoots with this. So I don't know why in America we are trying to make it more difficult for people to vote. It's very simple because they'll lose. Well, sure, of course. Right. <laughs> and my point is that what are we doing that you're trying to make it more difficult for people to vote? It's a form of voter suppression. It's a very aggressive form of voter suppression. And obvious. And it's because they're worried about losing. So I saw the Bill Barr interview with um, Wolf Blitzer as well. And two thoughts come to mind. The first is that his biography is going to you know, be titled Lies and the Lying Liars Who Tell Them. That's number one. Number two, Reid was talking about Donald Trump's descent into madness. There were some times during that interview when you look at um, 
Barr's face and his eyes and everything. And that guy is going a little bit off the brink as well. There's a descent happening there as well. Um, it takes a lot the, of effort to be that uh, to be duplicitous. Holy cow! <laughs> but and and it and it and you know what? It 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 comes with a toll. You know what? You know it's a burden to make to to live that way and to to be in that position. So, you know, to me, it, it Tara did a very good job of addressing the the threat to our free and fair elections, and and that's should be the most critical top of the line issue that people are concerned about right now. They should go to lincolnproject.us slash vote to learn everything they need to know about where and how to vote in their, uh, where they are today, lincolnproject.us slash vote. And then the, the bigger issue or, or equally large issue that long beyond this election is the total politicization and corruption of the Department of Justice under Bill Barr. And this is why mm-hmm. when the Lincoln Project talks about defeating Trumpism, not just Trump, but Trumpism, Bill Barr is getting away with extraordinary corruption also because there is a Senate majority full of Republicans who are weak and impotent and small-minded and unwilling to lack the courage to do what is right. So when, when my good friends in the Republican Party get all upset that we are targeting Republican senators at the That's Lincoln right. Project... If, if you believe for one minute that when this election is over, suddenly the Republicans in the Senate are going to develop a spine and a backbone and take action to save our republic, then, you know, it's, it's the whole, I've got a bridge to sell you. It's, there's no way it's going to happen. Either they have always been weak or they have been weakened by their pursuit of political power. Regardless of what it is, Bill Barr and that interview with Wolf Blitzer is the perfect example of why we must defeat not just Trump, but Trumpism as well. I also want to note that ballots are being sent in North Carolina today and that if people haven't registered or applied for a mail-in ballot, they should do that as soon as possible. Um, And like Jennifer said, you can go to lincolnproject.us slash vote for more information. All right. Now that we're up to speed on the most important pieces of the news this week, let's turn our attention to the week ahead. Um, Jennifer, why don't we go to you first? Uh, what stories are you watching? You know what, what, what I'm really, uh, have been watching closely and it's, it's not new. It's we've been talking about this, the talking about it, this whole segment is the assault on the free and fair elections. Uh, the story in Montana, you know, the filing, this, the lawsuit in Montana, in Montana, the, um, the idea that this, um, that the president's campaign is being so blatant and bold you know, it's another example of what we say all the time about Trump, that he says what the rest of us only whisper or what other politicians would only whisper, that they're saying we have to, you know, we, we want to legally, we want to, you know, in, the, in a court of law, stop this because it politically disadvantages us to do so. You know, it just, um, I, so I, I, for me, I think I'm going to continue to be watching all of those election stories. Um, and there are a number of states um, that could potentially become targets. I think if they get a foothold in Montana in this state, uh, in this in this um, in this um, suit, this lawsuit, I think you're going to see it pop up in a couple of other states as well. And by doing so, they don't just undermine the confidence of the people in the election, but they really are laying the groundwork for um, blocking free and fair elections going forward. And it is a voter suppression tactic 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, make no mistake. This is a voter suppression tactic. So for the Republican Party, who always gets so offended when they're accused of voter suppression and um, and and for my Republican friends, we've spent all these years saying that we are about the, the integrity of the ballot box. Um, this president is not about the t- integrity of the ballot box, and he is actively, openly, publicly trying to suppress the vote. So that's, I think, my attention is going to be to see where do they go next. Tara, what's on your mind this week? I take a particular interest in the national security aspect of these things and um, kind of playing off of of Jennifer's um, story about the election integrity. This week, we heard that a couple of stories that came out that were alarming for me from a national security perspective. First of all, we heard that... um, that the Department of Homeland Security suppressed a Russian interference operation um, that they that that intel intelligence uncovered, and they they withheld the report because once it got to Chad Wolf, the acting illegal acting Secretary of Homeland Security, they said, "Yeah, no, um, we're going to hold off on that." And what that report said was that the Russians were engaged in another propaganda effort to try to question Joe Biden's mental acuity. Surprise, surprise. What have we been seeing outside the Trump campaign for months and months? This is another part of the Russian interference propaganda campaign that the Trump, it, uh, the Trump campaign is openly engaged in. Um, and the fact that we have people in this administration that are covering that and the American people are not getting that information is criminal on so many levels. So there is that, which ties in also to um, the report this week as well, that there was a counterintelligence investigation opened up into Donald Trump's connections with Russia back in 2017 that was shut down by Rod Rosenstein, who was the deputy um, FBI director at the time, uh, a deputy uh, AG at the time, right after Comey was fired. And Ron Rosenstein, even though he appointed Mueller, but he also shut down basically that counterintelligence investigation. So Mueller never looked into Trump's direct ties, business ties and everything else to Russia, which are significant. This is something that cannot be understated. Um, so there was that which ties into Bill ba- back to Bill Barr. And to Jennifer's point, I agree with you that he is corrupt as all hell. Absolutely. Um, I also that's why I said I think he's one of the most dangerous men in America. Um, and this is why Bill Barr just re- just reassigned a 23 year career yep. lawyer in the Department of Justice who was the head of the Office of Law and Policy, which is in the National Security Division of the Justice Department. What does this little office do? They're there to determine what's legal and not when the government surveils people, yep. does operations overseas. They're they're kind of like the Office of Legal Counsel. Where, you know, that's where they go to determine really important civil liberties issues. And they determine also election integrity, what, you know, um, what the public should know about election security. It's awfully um, coincidental that this person who has headed that office for 12 years, a career person, not a political appointee, is now being removed and replaced with some 36-year-old um, lawyer who has no experience in this in this area and who is a partisan Trump acolyte, political appointee. Why is Bill Barr doing this two months before an election? All of these things tie in together. The oh, and then the other thing was the DNI 
the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the director of national intelligence, they've decided that they're not going to brief Congress in person anymore on election security. Right. They're only going to submit written reports, which prevents Congress from asking questions and challenging their assertions. Why? Again, to Jennifer's point, th- this is a Senate confirmed position. John Ratcliffe should never have been um, confirmed to be the DNI. He was rejected when Trump first put him up. And for a reason, because again, unqualified, the DNI is supposed to be nonpartisan and someone who has intelligence um, experience. All of these things tie together because it's still trying to inoculate Trump from the Russian interference, um, you know, integrity of the election, parts of these things which is a national security risk to our country. We have foreign interference going on as we speak. They're still doing it. And this administration is welcoming it with open arms. And I don't think that they should be allowed to get away with that. That's why the Senate has not done their job. And that's why at Lincoln Project, we have targeted those senators because they have to be held accountable. They have abdicated their responsibility. A lot of these people, Bill Barr, John Radcliffe and others, are there because the Republican Senate allowed them to be voted in. And that cannot stand. So those are the things that I'm watching, that the national security part of this, why is this administration so hell-bent on ignoring and dismissing and um, uh, just completely whitewashing Russia's interference role in this? Bill Barr did the same thing when he was asked in that in that interview with with Wolf Blitzer as well, where he tried to turn it around and say that it's China. Come on, you know, they want this election to be about China. That is a campaign talking point that the attorney general of the United States is engaging in. So pay attention to what's going on in the national security space with this, because it's uh, it matters. Before I let you go, We got a good question from a listener, and I want to read it and ask you guys to respond to it. This is from Arliss Miles, who writes, In my area of Texas, southeast of Houston near the Johnson Space Center, there are many wealthy, educated Trump supporters. Their issue seems to be taxes and protecting, quote, their way of life. There are also religious voters who would vote for the devil himself to prevent abortion access. It seems I'm surrounded. You've spoken about the non-college educated voter, but what about the rich who seems so enamored with Trump? Kara, why don't you take this one first? Well, they've already voted for the devil himself, in my opinion, um, based off of the way Trump has run this country um, and the way that <laughs> the divides in this country as a result of his, of his um, tenure in office has been a Faustian bargain, in my opinion. That's what they're choosing. They are choosing a Faustian bargain to get a couple of tax breaks and um, voting on an issue, whether you're pro-life or not. That's an issue that the president of the United States has no direct impact on, virtually no direct impact. It is a red herring, and but it's an emotional one. I mean, I'm pro-life and I, I understand from a Christian perspective why that's so important. But at the same time, when you talk about being pro-life and you look at the way that this president handles things like COVID, like kids in cages at the border, um, uh, ignoring Russian bounties on our troops and their lives. Um, He is not a pro-life candidate, but there is a certain amount of self-interest that these educated, wealthier voters see 
in um, a, a Trump presidency? And my, my, my answer to that is, why do you need Donald Trump to do this? Any respectable uh, Republican candidate would, would put forth the same types of policies that would be financially beneficial to those folks. We all want lower taxes. And, but what about the, the, the budget? What about the deficit? We've actually reached a point now where our deficit is equal to our GDP and rising. It's inc- I mean, it's, we are so fiscally irresponsible in this country, which is something that those wealthier Republicans used to feel was an important part. What about all of those other things? So they need to think about, um, the, you know, stop being so selfish about this and realize that Donald Trump is destroying our republic so they can get a tax cut. Is that worth it? And I would have to ask that. I would challenge them on that. Well, you know, you mentioned Faust. And for those who know the medieval legend, Mephistopheles takes your soul in, in this bargain and he doesn't give you anything in return in the end. You never get your soul back. You never get your soul back. This question and many others like it, you know, around on our town halls and everything else, we get so many people um, asking similar questions to this. Um, just highlights for me what this election is really about. And it is, you know, as we can talk about the issues, we can talk about the corruption, we can talk about the incompetence and the, you know, descent into madness and everything else that this is. But what, the, what this election is really going to be is, a, is going to be a test of we the people. It's going to be a test of what we are willing to accept and what we are willing to sacrifice in order to save what we know is right and good and great in America. Um, and I just think that that in the end, um, you, you know, it's it's on us. It's Bill Barr, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, uh, you know, everything. It's on us. It's in our hands. This is going to be a test of our willingness to put country over self-interest, to put country over political allegiance, to put country over any sort of friendship or connection that you feel to a particular candidate, uh, you know, Senator, maybe that you have voted for, you know, every time Um, we, it, it, this is the moment where we, the people have to take a long, hard look at ourselves and decide what do we really believe? What do we really value? And if we value a free America, a, um, a democratic Republic, if we truly care about what is the best world that we can pass on to our children and what is the best example that we can set it for courage and um, integrity and doing the right thing in hard moments, then you know, this is it. Those are the questions we have to answer for ourselves. This is the moment. Uh, and, and I believe that the American people are going to come together on election day and they're going to step into this moment, that they're going to face this challenge and overcome it as one. I really do believe that. And thank you to Tara, Reed, and Jennifer for being on the show. And thanks to everyone at home for listening. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.